guys. So welcome, welcome everybody back to Crime Scene Queens. And just reminder, this is the show where you're going to get an awful lot of information about forensic science, crime scene investigation, and all of that gross crap that you guys like to hear about, but without being, you know, crappy to victims and their families. And I am your friendly neighborhood CSI and field mouse Laura. Well, happy holidays, everybody. I am Shelly, your courtroom cat. Yes, happy holidays, everyone. So thank you, as Laura said, for listening to the Crime Scene Queens. And today is kind of a fun little holiday episode that we have. It's kind of heartwarming. We have a <laughs> special guest today. Yes, we do. Yeah. So our special guest is someone that is very near and dear and close to my heart. And I actually have known her since uh, she was in the womb of my best friend. So this is my niece, Maddie. Hello. Hello, Maddie. So today I think uh, we're going to do an episode all about fan questions. Well, I think Maddie can offer us like the perspective of our listeners and like things that people have been maybe wondering about as we've gone through the first, you know, 10, 15, 20 episodes of the show. Yeah. So first, I think I'd like to maybe have Maddie introduce herself. Sure. Hi, I'm Maddie. I am a freshman at NAU in Arizona right now. I'm studying business in hotel and restaurant management, but I've always had kind of an interest in true crime. And I've been listening to Crime Scene Queen since it pretty much came out because I was told about it for months before it was even recording. And I really like the podcast because it just talks about like the reality and the terminology behind everything rather than just kind of the 15 minutes of fame that the violent crimes get. And it gives mm -hmm. you more insight. So it's a great podcast if that's what you're looking for. Well, thank you. We appreciate that. And I totally have to call up my best friend right now because ever since Maddie was really, really little, uh, they used to fall asleep watching a few different crime shows. One of them was Forensic Files. And what were the other ones, Maddie? Well, I'm currently wearing a Criminal Minds sweatshirt, so that <laughs> might give a little indication. Pretty much anything that was on the ID channel, Forensic Files, Ghost Files, what's that one guy? Joe something from Denver? Joe Kenda. Yeah, Joe Kenda. Oh, Lieutenant so, Joe Kenda? Yes. Yeah. Funny. Yep. Pretty much we could, anything that was on television or Netflix, we were watching. Pretty awesome. So thank you so much for listening to our show. And do we just want to open up the floor? So guys, we did pose questions on social media to see if you all wanted to have Maddie read some to us, but maybe uh, we could start with the ones that you've been wondering. Yeah, I actually just had more some questions about like what your role as a CSI is rather than how it pertains to scenes necessarily. Okay. So one of the questions I had was like, as CSI, what is the first thing you do when you arrive on scene? And is or are there first things that you record and look for? Is it different for every scene? That kind of thing. So that's a good question. I've had that one before, actually, many times, whether it be through students or like people messaging the show. And it does depend because there are so many different circumstances in which I can be called to a scene. And sometimes the situation is really volatile, meaning there's inclement weather or a lot of public and chaos around. Um, sometimes the scene is days, weeks old because we didn't get information that anything happened until much, much later. Yeah. Sometimes so, it's super high publicity mm -hmm. as well. Right. Yeah. Like a lot of chaos, a lot of media, and that changes the way that you do things, obviously. So I think what I'll do to answer your question, the most streamlined thing that I can say is 
what I will do typically without a ton of outliers and all these other variables that can come into play. So on the most basic level, when I arrive on scene, depending on whether or not the detective or the first responding officer is available to give me information, I will always start by getting case number, victim's name, suspect's name, if it's available, address where I am, documenting all of that. So you immediately start notes. I'll take note of certain things. Is this inside, outside, temperature, outside temperature, inside, like all the basics. Then I'll, I'll find out if anybody has manipulated the scene in any way. Sometimes well-meaning public officers, whoever, will do things like move a firearm or a weapon. And I need to take note of that. So I'll take note of things that have been altered, either sometimes even by uh, emergency personnel. There can be things that were shifted. So I'll take notes of that. Then typically I will take my overall photograph. So we have generally three types of photographs, overall, mid-range, and close. Overall photographs are meant to establish where the scene is in space, meaning I'll take pictures Street signs, house numbers, external pictures of the entire home or building or area. If the crime scene is outdoors, I'll take pictures of crossroads, street signs, all relevant identifying information is outside of the boundaries of an address. Then if I'm talking about an indoor scene, you're going to do pictures of an overview of every room of the house. Now, around this time, typically the detective will have already arrived, and there is usually a time for the detective and I to do a walkthrough of the scene and come up with a game plan together. Sometimes they are already doing interviews, in which case, through text or phone call, at a minimum, sometimes I don't get to talk to them at all, and I'll make my own choices, which typically I was trusted to do because hopefully I was like, really good at my job. <laughs> um, <laughs> Very talented. You're, yeah, but you know, you do thousands of, of crime scenes you've been on. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So, you know, well, you know, like, I mean, they trusted me, but I always wanted the detectives. You wanted his insight. Yeah. So many different reasons. Sometimes they'll have information that I don't. And depending on the type of CSI you are, you either want to know it or you don't. Some people like to do scenes blind because that way there's no bias. Yeah. Some people like to have all the information possible so that you don't miss something. I'm a splitter. I kind of like a little bit of both if that makes sense. Okay. Um, after I get that information from the detective and get a game plan that usually starts the mid-range photographs. After mid-range photographs, you'll start to identify items of evidence and separate them or identify them with like evidence marking cones. You'll typically make decisions about if there's a, if there's a deceased person about contacting a medical examiner and seeing how they want to handle it. After identifying evidence, then I'll go through and I'll take close range photographs. And this can be anything from like a quick 90 degree photo of the item of evidence, or sometimes I'll incorporate a scale of measurement if it's relevant. Things that are relevant is when the size matters. Okay. And I'm not saying that <laughs> the way that you're thinking. <laughs> what do you, hold on, hold on. What, what, what you talking about, Laura? I thought we were talking about I'm Subway. talking about how, <laughs> yeah, you can either have a six-inch sub, Shelly, or a 12-inch sub. But what I mean is, like, size matters with, like, areas of injury, bruising patterns, 
uh, fracture patterns, both in the wall or sizes of stains, blood spatter, anything where the size of the item could be relevant. You'll photograph both with and without scale. Your savvy law aunt can tell you why that matters. Why does it matter to be with and without scale, Shelly? So it's funny because I'm actually in another state right now and I'm teaching in this other state. And it's really awesome because we talk about this. So the reason that you want to take Mm -hmm. photographs without placards first is because you just want to be completely transparent and you want to make sure that you are not hiding anything or make it look like you're not hiding anything, anything around the evidence, any evidence that could be next to another item of evidence. So you just want to show the scene and the evidence exactly the way that it is. Right. Because what's under that scale? I bet you what's under that scale is something that could exonerate my client. Absolutely. There's evidence hiding there. So you always want the picture with and without scale of measurement for your close range pictures. And if you're talking about doing something like a um, an impression or like a shoe print, whether it be a void print where like uh, somebody was walking through dirt and it left like the pattern of the shoe or if they made an impression in like sand and you have to do a whole other shebang. After that, I decide what I am going to choose to process on the scene, what I'm going to fingerprint there, and what I'm going to collect and then take back at the lab. And either way, I'm going to collect with a lot of integrity. And I guess the only step that I can think of that I skipped is uh, putting on PPE or personal protective equipment. I shouldn't have forgotten that. That's important. What about signing into the law? They do that for me. Oh. Oh. Yeah. No, no. There's a cop that... No, you have have people that do that for you? Look at you. There is always... Listen, there is always a dude guarding the scene. And then when I walk through, they the an officer usually does the law. Correct. So like they, when I walk under the tape, they just leave me on until I leave. There's, yeah. there's certain agencies that they actually make you sign. So you write your name oh, really? and sign. Yeah. Oh, well, not mine. <laughs> Neither one. Neither one of them. <laughs> I mean, there was like plenty of evidence I was there, my pictures. But the moment I walk underneath the crime scene tape, my presence is logged and timestamped. Good. But I guess it's important to have it both ways. I could see why they'd want you to sign, but there are some people that don't want to sign. Chain of command sometimes doesn't want to sign. Yeah, understood. Understood. But, you know. Right. Whatever. Transparency so and that, authenticity. Yeah. Yeah. That's like important to do. Yes. A little. So after that, you know, it's a series of um, if there's a victim documenting the victim, superficial analysis of the victim, waiting for the medical examiner. So on that point, I'm going to cut you off because I just want to know, basically, you know, what we do is we we de- we brief. So, you know, you either you get your call out and then you go to the scene and you brief. And usually, usually you brief on or right next to the scene, but depending on how big the scene is or how, like you were talking about. You yeah, know, we don't much- always brief in the scene. Sometimes we oh, brief. Oh, not always. In there sometimes. Yeah. Sometimes like we'll brief, yeah. you know, a couple blocks away and then you go to yeah. the scene. So, to, you know, it just right. all depends. And sometimes then, on the phone on the way there, you know, oh, too. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. And then, you know, then you do your walkthrough. And if you're doing your walkthrough and if there is someone that is deceased, usually that's when we call our Emmy because we're yeah. so busy and our Emmys are so busy that it, yeah. it can take them a while to get there. So I was going to ask you on that. So when I was new to CSI, they hazed me a little bit by having me call the Emmy because there's so many questions you have to answer. I think they were just giving me shit. But like eventually (laughs) what will happen is the detective will task like an officer, usually the first responder or somebody who's going to be writing or going to be the lead officer on the case as far as like the Rhodes perspective, not the detective or I. 
they'll task gotcha. them with calling the ME pretty soon. Okay. Especially if it's a clearly violent crime. Yes. Or if it's like a an especially warm day outside and it's an outdoor scene, you don't want uh, burning of the body. Yeah. Right. Yeah. All right. So there's a, I don't know if I should be calling out like a specific brand, but there is a brand of crime machine shields that we use called Stop Rubbernecking. Whenever somebody dies outside in view of the public, we would typically cover them, even though that technically is introducing an, a new item into the scene that, you know, we want to preserve as much of the original condition of the scene as possible. But we also don't want the public walking by yeah. and seeing this person in a very un, like crappy position. And sometimes the way people die is like gruesome yeah. looking. Yeah, we so, so yeah we'll put up um, instead of on top of the body or over the body, it's usually covering around the scene if if possible. Yeah. Well, we have a lot of airplanes, and then like I've had moments where I lost my professionalism when I have caught like the public climbing fences to live stream stuff on their phone. Ouch! That was disgusting, and it yes. happened more than one time. So these barrier shields. Kind of like if you think of like a cubicle, mm-hmm. only thinner, like we put them over elements as much of the scene as we can sometimes, particularly the victim. So and that I can could see that being used things, yeah. um, not only for the rubberneckers, but also for mm. inclement weather, whether yeah. it be the heat and well, the sun or potentially, ra- I don't know if it would pr- protect against rain because it's You know, like thin. when you go to a fair or something, there's the tents where like all the vendors are and there's a little roof. Yeah. We had something like that to cover up victims and evidence for the rain but i remember working death scenes where it was like a really violent traffic homicide and people were ejected from vehicles and then it started to like pour oh man that was all it was really like like i couldn't go out there with my camera evidence was getting blown all over the place yeah it was awful but like i can't do anything about yeah, there's there's not a whole lot that you can do. I mean, we've we've mm. moved uh, sunshades over a body to protect it from the sun getting yeah. sunburnt. Because I think Absolutely. we discussed that before in one of our episodes mm. about, you know, even though you're deceased, you can still receive sunburns and your skin. Just in- like leather can still tan. There you go. On your purse. I'm going to tan your hide. I remember that. Sorry. Yeah, sorry, Maddie. <laughs> All right, so I just answered your question for like a really long time. And you said you were going to streamline it. Yeah. I did, actually. I did streamline it. Isn't that sad? (laughs) (laughs) It was a thorough answer, but you did. Because I didn't even get into taking it back to the lab and evidence processing and filling out forms and writing the report and like doing all the subsequent like meetings. I like totally did abbreviate all the things that we could do. That is true. And then, you know, preparing it in case the the case does, in case it turns into something that's going to go to trial or. And processing evidence twice so that there's a sample for both the defense and execution. Oh, yes. Yes, definitely. Over collection and yes. Yeah. That type of stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So does that answer your question, Maddie? Yeah. Does that give you enough information? I think so. Is that just, is your is your informational cup overflowing? <laughs> I have a little bit more room. Okay. All right. Well, then, then hit, us yeah. with your, okay. hit us with your best shot. Next one. So another question that I got, I've been asking my friends for the last couple of weeks when I found out I was going to be on the podcast because total fangirl moment. Um. <laughs> Oh, one of the questions that a friend had was, what kind of education goes into becoming a CSI? So, again, it's kind of different per agency's requirements. Yeah. I have a master's degree 
in forensic science with a focus in medical legal death investigation with a concentration in human identity and trauma analysis. You do not have to have that. <laughs> no, and that's a lot. And yeah, Laura likes bones. Yeah. She likes skulls. I love bones. She, yes. You say skulls and she gets so incredibly excited. Yeah, I know. We have a double what? episode because I couldn't stop talking. Basically, there are police agencies that require no forensics degree, but maybe you've been at that department and eventually like through on the job experience, you get assigned to the crime scene unit and then you do some on the job training or maybe supplementary education all the way to like local here in Broward County where I am. One of the uh, colleges has a two year crime scene tech certificate. Some agencies take that. Some agencies require a four-year degree. So it really is going to depend on the unique agency's requirements. Teaching some of this all over the, you know, the U.S., I've, I've actually learned a lot about what it does take and what degrees people do have. And different states, different cities, different counties have different requirements. So right. my first, I guess, you know, my first comment is going to be that if you want to get into this field, I would definitely... Do some online research and just find out exactly what it takes or, you know, just do like a job search for a local agency. And if you're going to do that, then, you know, definitely check out all the different agencies. So you can, you know, city, county, whatever the situation may be and check out what their requirements are. But there's a certificate that you can get. Yep. There's associate's degrees. There's bachelor's. There's master's. There's, you know, all the way up. But there's also some police departments and some law enforcement agencies that make it an assignment. So they're sworn law enforcement and yep. they get on the special detail. And whether they sometimes they ask for it and sometimes they're just assigned and they are now forensic evidence techs or CSIs as, you know, the term is interchangeable, but that's their new assignment now. So it's, it's pretty, it just depends on where you're at, what city, what state. How do you get a job in CSI? Like, is it a lot of networking what would you say is like super vital for? I kind of want to take this one on first because this is crazy where where I live, and I feel like it's almost this way in a lot of other areas. To get a job as a CSI or to get a job in the forensic field, a lot of people want to do that, and so it's a, I uh, you definitely have to network, and I know you know Laura and I we met at the International Association for Identification, the IAI, so we met at that conference. And that's an amazing association to be part of because you will have a lot of connections, but you also have to have a lot of local connections as well. Because for our agency, there's a wait list and it could be years long. You'll you, and a lot of people are in already in you know working for the county or working for the city, and so they have a, a shoe in before normally the general public. I would say that networking is always important because like when I was applying for jobs, I had done a lot of work in my master's program with local agencies under the tutelage of my mentor in forensics. So people were able to speak for me. But that being said, even with a master's degree and a lot of people that could say, hey, she's awesome. I still, it took over a year. Um, okay. Almost a year, not over a year, almost a year for me to get a job in CSI. And reflecting back on it, I totally agree with Shelley. Um, joining things like the student divisions of the Amer um, International Association for Identification or the American Academy of Forensic Sciences, which is another forensic cohort, that will help you kind of get more like 
leverage and more like under your feet. However, the other element that Shelley was also alluding to is depending on where you live, there might not be jobs available for you mm-hmm. in crime scene. Like where I live, I'm very lucky because Whereas some places with a smaller population might have a few crime scene units and then also the sheriff's department or maybe a state police. We have, I mean, like over 20 local agencies, but that's typical. So if you live in in a really high crime area, (laughs) I do live in a very high crime area. Actually, I live in a huge crime area and I also live in a very populous area. Yeah. So there's like a lot more cities in our county than maybe other areas of the country. I mean, our county is the population of some states. Yeah. So it's it's gonna be that way. So I always tell people that ask me how they can get a job to be willing to move. I had to move. I didn't just get a job in CSI where I graduated college. There's only three crime scene units amongst two counties. Yeah. So it wasn't gonna happen. And Even if it did, who's to say that that crime scene unit and I are a good fit? So you have to be willing to move. I highly recommend a degree. And I also recommend membership in those forensic societies. And the other thing is a lot of those societies offer free trainings that will issue you a certificate that you can put into your job application. And I know companies like TriTech Forensics and other um, training organizations will offer forensic training webinars now since the pandemic, and they're less than $100. And this is a great way to add and pack that resume. And let me think. I I had one more thing at the tip. Oh, don't do any drugs. Yes, don't do drugs. Yes. like, Like, no drugs, not in college. If you want to be a CSI, I don't care that weed is legal. Like, I don't care. It's legal you are in some states. It's not legal federally. So don't do right. it because yeah. if you are just, – yeah. just don't do it. Yeah. Um, this is a very highly competitive field and – Yeah, they don't need you. Yeah, and it's super saturated um, yeah. with, you know, people that are just waiting to get in. And it there's actually – one of the students that I had recently who was talking about how they applied at a different agency and they said, you know, yeah, I smoked weed six years ago and I couldn't even get into that department. Yeah, you can't. Sometimes, sometimes agencies require 10 years, some require five. And the, let me just pile on top of this. Now, like when I was applying for jobs, we have like MySpace and Facebook. Don't laugh, Maddie. Like there was a stupid Snapchat. We, I don't even think we had Instagram. We certainly didn't have TikTok. And people post their dumbassness on these things and they think it just like goes away and they think their private profile will protect them. It won't. Okay. So like if you have decided to put the fact that you like Carrie Underwood like destroyed your ex-boyfriend's car for cheating on you on TikTok, don't apply for a crime scene job. Yeah. Like. or delete you, it at least. Exactly. Well, no, if you, but even if you think that you delete it, so this is kind of, you know, where a lot of the legal stuff comes in because even yeah. if you delete it, you didn't delete it. You really didn't, you didn't delete, delete it. it. We're going to find it. And guess what? The, it, there are so many applicants that they look into all of this. And if your local agency, you don't think that they look into it, well, they're hiring someone else to look into it. So don't think that you can yeah. know someone that's going to get rid of or, you know, scrub the internet for you. And yeah. none of this is going to come up because it will. So just, you know, like Laura said. And they even knock you for stuff that isn't illegal. It's just not going to happen. Like 
congratulations that you can twerk and good job on having a great ass. But if you have that (laughs) shit on the internet, you're not going to get hired. Yeah. Like, I'm so proud of you that you can do whatever TikTok dumbass dance is popular. If I can see like your entire butthole or most of your cleavage (laughs) or underboob, it's not going to happen. Put your body parts back in your clothes and then you'll probably get a job. And I'm not being a hater. I'm just making recommendations. I'm proud of you for your tits and ass. Put it back or dick or whenever you have out. I don't care. Yeah, this is, it's definitely CSIs, all crime scene professionals are, they are professionals. And that is definitely a word. Even though they're not wearing suits, they are still professionals. They're wearing their gear. And some of them are sworn but they have privileges that the normal public doesn't because they can go inside that crime scene tape and it makes them kind of a different breed. So definitely remain professional. Well, on behalf of all CSIs everywhere, thank you, Shelly. However, I will say that we're definitely professional shit shows. Like, I didn't say like we're kind we of professional. Like, I just said professional. Like, <laughs> like we clean up, nice, but like we're all like a ridiculous hot mess. We just do a really good job of hiding it and not putting it on the internet. <laughs> oh my gosh. Okay, yeah. So if you're gonna do stuff, Laura says, don't just don't put it on the internet. Yeah. No. <laughs> Keep your twerking in your room. None of it. Or, you know, on your phone and send it. To, no, like, yourself. <laughs> no, don't even keep it on your phone because guess what? The second that you get into like a car accident and someone wants to see your phone to see if you were texting and driving, which is That's illegal, so funny. guess what they're going to find? They're going to find you twerking and they're going to post it on the internet. Well, people do all kinds of banana sandwich stuff with their phone. Full banana sandwich. So again, 100%. we kind of like took her question and then like spiraled with it. <laughs> Matt, you're probably going to have like time to ask like, you know, just maybe one or two more because. <laughs> but we'll find out. We'll Obviously, try to be more we like to talk. <laughs> yeah, so you better you better think about your next question. Yeah, think I'm about it, pick carefully. it real carefully. Yeah, yeah, think about it real carefully. Did you have any sort of reality check when going from like school slash training to actually responding to scenes? Like your like little pre career self was so excited to get into this career and do this thing, and then you get there and it's. The smells are yeah. not what you the expected. Smells, the the, no, the smells are definitely what I expected from grad school. I was totally prepared for smells. Or like the emotional turmoil, anything like that. I think that I did not expect. Okay, so I don't know want to say expect. I didn't think certain things all the way through. Like I expected to be working with the dead, but I didn't think all the way through to like, okay, but the family's in the next room grieving loudly. Yes. Which and like how that would feel. Yeah. Yeah. And I didn't tough. think through like children. Like I, I knew I would be uh, having to encounter that, but I didn't really realize that sometimes with child death, it creates a lot of anger inside of me for like maybe the condition in which that child met its death, like or his or her death. Um, Like when it's negligence or abuse or things of that nature, I didn't really think through. Okay, I expected sadness and tragedy, but I didn't expect anger and like, like almost like like I didn't expect the disconnect. At, and sometimes I actually surprised myself on the other end too, Maddie, where I went home and I wondered why it didn't bother me so much. Oh, wow. Like there were times where I was like, why am I not upset about this? I you think know, maybe you went um, scientific. Yeah. You probably went scientific. Because no, you're, it, it, you're, not, maybe. you're not super dark. 
I mean, you're you're dark, but you're not you're not yeah. overly dark. I think yeah. I think for me it was definitely it was you know the, the children I was expecting, but mm-hmm. hearing the families that that I think yeah. definitely gets to me because now you're you know when you're there and and there's a deceased person. You're like, okay, this this I'm processing. This you know is educational. It's scientific. It's all these things that my brain is is going to turn to instead of turning to emotions and feelings. But then hearing those emotions and feelings from you know family or even I've I've even experienced it from uh, other people that are on the scene, and that was hard. As well as I think animals, animals really really oh, yeah. got to me. And you know, there are cultures that grieve very physically. And what I mean by that is they tear their clothes as a part of their rituals. They throw themselves on the ground. And I know that doesn't sound like um, an abnormal grieving response when you think about being, but I mean, like, not the way that you think about like a mother collapsing on their knees or a father or a sister or a brother or a friend. I mean, like, it's, it's like a, a, a cultural flailing and like there is, there is grieving patterns that are like, I, I don't want to be disrespectful, so I want to use the word intimidating that, because they're so word. physical, like physical and loud. And it's like it is a perceived lack of control, which, by the way, I'm not saying that a person in a deep state of grief should be in control, but it's it's intimidating. Correct. Yeah. So Definitely like unexpected. that was something. I Yeah, that was something that was unexpected for me. But it's a good combination of those little outliers that I was just talking about, of those little other factors. And then just me being like, why am I more concerned about dinner and getting home to feed my dog? And I think I think that's your personal disconnect. I think that's your personal yeah. disconnect saying, I don't want to have to process this right now. So instead, yeah. you know, my mind is going off on another direction. Yeah, probably. I mean, that was always... Like, I mean, it made me feel bad sometimes that I wasn't more upset. Yeah, maybe you were tired, too. Well, there is definitely exhaustion, but I I somewhat expected that. But I, what I didn't expect is the way that crime scene units are understaffed. That became a really big deal. Like, I expected there to be more people helping out on these huge things. And, like, I think the most I ever had on a scene was three, and that was, like, a big deal. Yeah, I think also another thing, too, is I think that uh, there wasn't I think that there was an expectation of if if there is a huge crime scene, that there's going to be some type of a follow up of, you know, hey, crime scene people, are you OK? You know, just just like a, a check in yeah. on us just to see if, you know, mentally everything is OK and great. Then since everything's good, we can move on to the next thing. So I think that there was, you know, if when you're in it, you maybe there's not someone that you can talk to, you know, in your personal life because they won't understand. So I think that that was, that was probably one of the things that I experienced and that, you know, possibly made me turn to and kind of feel the feelings that I felt and handle scenes the way that I did, which, you know, like I said, I just turned everything scientific and just turned off the Mm -hmm. emotion because Mm -hmm. I couldn't have emotion because there was no one for me to vent to. Mm-hmm. Well, actually, if you don't mind, Maddie, there was a question that kind of applies to this that was popped into the, like, our social media on uh, the Instagram portal. So, Shelly, maybe I'll pose the question to you and then I'll give my own perspective. It says, 
what advice do the crime scene queens have for mental health professionals interested in working with CSIs or law enforcement? I feel like maybe they could talk to or get in touch with departments and (laughs) see if there's something that they can do. I mean, if they're talking about getting paid for it, that's something different. But if they're talking about doing it for free, then I think that there could potentially be a a well-received invite on that. And I think maybe talking to the departments, uh, getting involved with that, maybe there's some type of a society that already does this. I have a feeling that there is something in the works if it's not already in effect that Uh people can turn to. But I know for like our department, we do have a hotline that you can call if you need to talk to someone. Right. So my answer to this question is, I think that the person that's offering services to law enforcement and CSI should be a trauma-trained therapist because not all therapists are trained in trauma responses and PTSD. True. I think that this person should also, um, depending on how they wish to serve our community, be in line with a victim's rights advocate. Like Usually if a victim's rights advocate has to be called out to a crime scene, And the people on scene are also experiencing something traumatic. So if somebody like that was for us was made aware that an incident has happened and then was maybe made available within 12 or 24 hours after said incident as like a check in and then maybe could even advocate. Shell, I know that we talked about in a previous episode how I was really mad because I found out a local CSI unit was made to work a very violent child death scene. And then they were really busy. So they sent these CSIs from scene to scene to scene to scene. And they were all like mentally broken by the end because they didn't give them rest or food or much rest or food. So like if we almost need an advocate to say like, no, yeah, this is enough. They need a break. You need this. Like, I mean, you know, I just think that that would be helpful if this person was trained in trauma and was also empowered to for advocacy that's my input yeah yeah definitely and you know I, I I do have actually a lot of students that come to me and they talk to me outside of the typical classroom setting because they don't want to bring it up in front of the entire right. class but they do say hey you know like there was a scene that I had that was extremely traumatic and mm-hmm. I'm hoping that I don't have to actually testify on it because I don't know how I'm gonna keep it together and yep that's something that, you know, I do have to, one of the things that I do address when I, when I teach the courtroom testimony course is I do talk about, you know, try not to show emotion on the stand because you are an expert and you are a professional. However, some emotion is absolutely normal, but just try to keep it together if you can. And if you don't think mm-hmm. that you're going to be able to, then I do talk to them a little bit more on the side and, you know, give them some advice on what to do or who to go see. So. Right. Absolutely. You guys see a lot and nobody, there's been a couple times mentioned in the podcast where you're kind of forgotten about, like, everybody orders pizza for the detectives but forgets about CSI. And so I just wanted to say, like, listening to the podcast has um, made me earn this new sort of respect for what you guys kind of do. Because you're, everybody there is seeing everything that's happening and the trauma and how serious the situation is. But you guys are the ones literally getting centimeters away from these things and having to take pictures and hold yourself together while you're documenting 
people's last moments being alive. So yeah. that's just something I wanted to touch on was that that's a yeah. huge thing I have a new respect for. Well, that's Thank sweet. Thank you. Yeah. And thank you for all, you know, everyone out there too, you know, I'm thanking you for them as well, because I know that they will feel appreciated by that. And that's huge. You know, that's, def- that's definitely huge. And nobody's taking it lightly. Yes. Yes. Thank you. Do we have my yeah, thanks, time Maddie. for more questions? Of course. Or? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. We kind of talked about like some of the challenges of the job, but what would you say is the most rewarding part of your job? Oh, Laura, go for it. I really, really like providing any element of an answer or a conclusion or a solution. I really like like the gotcha. I love finding the print. I love when my DNA swabs get a hit. I love when something that I have Mm -hmm. done holds somebody that's done something awful to somebody else accountable Mm -hmm. when I can. Like, I love when some, like, victims aren't ever going to be able to escape what happened to them. It happened. We can't go back. Mm -hmm. So now when we're looking forward, it brings me so much joy that something that I did at least resolved an element of that, like that incident. Okay, well, you did this to me, but you didn't get away with it. Exactly. Yeah. My ethical responsibility is to the truth. Shelly and I have talked about that. So subsequently, it also brings me joy when something that I've done proves that somebody is innocent and then they do not have to go through the justice system because of misinformation or the misinterpretation of information or there's just something that was a disconnect because I found something that completed the whole circle or excluded somebody as a suspect. Like I like that too. So essentially I like solving the puzzle puzzle hugely, especially when it contributes to freedom, Mm -hmm. whether that be a physical freedom or an emotional freedom in some way to people. Well, freaking love it. Yeah. And that freedom, you know, it it also goes for, you know, the victims, families, relatives, loved ones, whatever, because yeah. that freedom of them feeling, you know, that thank you so much. You actually found the, you know, like you said, the print or the, you know, the the DNA got a match. Yeah. So they yeah. get this freedom of potential closure. So I, yeah. I would I would have to agree with you that that's that I think is probably, you know, it's the heartwarming. It's the that I don't I don't know if I would say gotcha moment. Like, you know, I do, I understand what you're saying, but for me, it's, it's more of the, Mm -hmm. I fit the pieces together. Yep. And now I, even though I don't have any bias and I'm not going on scene looking for any certain evidence, I'm processing scenes, just every scene, you know, not the same, obviously, because all scenes are different, but you know, you process in the same way that you would any other scene. Every scene, every time. Exactly. Every scene, every time. Yes, 100% every scene, every time. And so that, just that feeling of knowing that you did the best that you could and that you actually got that print and or yeah. something that, that tied it to either innocence or guilt. Yeah, I mean, especially when like you find something that's hard to find or something that other people overlooked or something that like wasn't thought of. 
or something that you were able to pull, whether it be out of intuition or your KSAs, your knowledge, skills, and abilities. Like that's also kind of neat. Exactly. Yeah. I was just going to say, yeah, you say KSA is like, you know, education yep. experience. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So we had one more question from your guys' listeners. Um, what would you say are three go-to rules for success? Don't do drugs. It was probably one of them. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, my three on the job would be critical thinking. Yes. Resilience. I know we just mentioned like mental health, but there is a certain amount of resilience. Like if you're a very sensitive person, God bless you. This is not the job for you. Like you have to have a certain amount of resilience and that doesn't mean you're weak. That means this isn't for you. Just like many things aren't for people. Math isn't for me. I'm not going to be an accountant. I'm at peace with that. Right. (laughs) Cried my way through financial accounting. I will not be an accountant or anything Uh financial. Yep. So critical thinking resilience and uh, attention to detail like that, like to pile onto attention to detail, a natural curiosity and nosiness. Because let me tell you something. Nobody's going to I'm going to find out the answer. If I'm curious about something, I'm going to figure it out, whether or not I scrounge through everybody's social media or I ask second and third levels of questioning. Like Mm -hmm. that's how those are the I mean, you have to be like insanely detailed and curious and a little bit nosy. Exactly. Exactly. And I, so for me, I would say I love the resilience. That's, that puts a lot Mm -hmm. of my thought processes into one word because sometimes Mm -hmm. words are definitely hard, but being non-biased, that is something. And when I say that it's, you know, you, every scene, every time you a hundred percent go into the scene, you don't, even if during briefing it was, you know, this is a homicide or actually, I'm sorry, if you go into briefing and they say it was a suicide, you go in there. It doesn't matter if it's suicide, homicide. It doesn't matter. You go and mm-hmm. you process the same. And the same. Yes. And being professional on scene is something else that I think is key because, you know, Maddie nailed the uh, no drug use. So can't quite say that. But, you know, just and knowing your abilities, knowing your limitations, knowing yeah. your, yes, your limitations, your weaknesses, and knowing when you need a break mentally, physically, Knowing that about yourself and not pushing mm-hmm. through sometimes because when you do that, you can you can make errors and errors are they can be life changing for some people. Right, right. I agree. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. So that's that's awesome. Okay, so my last question is actually for your guys as listeners. Driving from Colorado to NAU, my mom and I played this game while listening of how many times Shelly says 100% or totally rad. <laughs> so I just want to know if anybody else likes to play that game. If not, yeah. definitely give it a try because it will keep you entertained. You know what? That it's is just so funny. Hashtag 100%. That's it. Just 100%. 100%. <laughs> or you can say the hashtag is 100%. You're totally rad. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Absolutely. Absolutely. So see, I'm trying to get away from it because someone came up to me and they said 100%. I was like, Oh man. Yeah, I do. Say I say that, that too though. I say 100%. <laughs> I love it. I love it. And you know what? That's fine. That's fine. And it is totally yep. rad. It kind of shows You could have level. worse. You could have worse <laughs> like what do they call those? It's not a tick. It's like you could have worse sayings that you repeat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There you go. There you go. It it, it could be see there Silver linings. Silver linings are Thanks. great. Happy silver endings. Silver linings. Silver yeah. linings like silver bells because 
This is our heartwarming holiday episode. So if you guys want to submit more questions to us, because maybe we didn't get to them in this episode, you can email us at hello at crimescenequeens.com. You can also find us on every social media platform, um, Instagram, TikTok, at Crime Scene Queens. You can send us a DM there. We answer our DMs. It'll definitely be probably Shelly or I. (laughs) (laughs) You know, uh, we appreciate all of you. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you so much, Maddie, for yes. coming in and be our voice of the listener. Yes. Thank, thank you for having me. Thank you so much, Maddie. And I do want to say one thing about, you know, when we do, when I look at the emails, when I check the emails, when I look at the social media, mm-hmm. just the love from our fans, you know, it's uh. so weird because, you know, you listen to all these shows and people are like, hey, you know, whatever, whether it's another yep. podcast. How dare you? Um, or, you know, it's, <laughs> right? Or it's, you know, TV show and like, hey, we love our listeners. You know, we love you. Honestly, you know, this is this is me and Laura. Like, this is this, just the two of us. And, you know, mm-hmm. we're like, I I feel the love and I love all of you back. Thank you so yes. much. Yes. Yep. Yes. XOXO, your crime scene. Yes. But, right? But so. in the meantime, right, Shelly? Yes. In the meantime. If you're going to die. Do your local crime scene unit a favor and keep it interesting. Thank you, everybody, for listening. We absolutely love you. Happy holidays from Happy Girls, holidays. the Crime Scene Queens. Crime Scene Queens is a Q Code Media production, executive produced by David Henning and Steve Wilson, produced by Ryan Counts House, edited by Nate DeFord, and theme song and music by Darren Johnson. In the 1970s, John Todd burst onto the evangelical scene with a shocking tale. He claimed to be a former witch, involved in a then-unheard-of secret organization called the Illuminati, and urged Christians to prepare for a violent world takeover. First of all, the number one weapon in everybody's home should be a 12-gauge pump shotgun. Hear the amazing story of one of the originators of the modern-day conspiracy theory. From Magnificent Noise and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Cover Up, The Conspiracy Tapes.